Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City City Limits. Okay, City Limits, we're back on air for the, this is the second time this year, I think it is, I'm losing track already, isn't it incredible? Um, Andy just pressed the buttons to put us on air anyway, Andy, thank you. So far you've done a wonderful job, by the way, you've kept us, no worries. We, haven't, we haven't had any dead air yet. Um, and uh, Mark Allen's over there, I'm Kevin Healy, and, um, and good news today, we've got a, a new co, um, co-presenter. Lynn Drummond. Hello, I'm Lynn. Yes. Hi, Lynn. (laughs) Welcome to City Limits. And City Limits, today it's our normal energy day, and we're going to be talking to... we're going to be talking to the clean energy person from uh, Environment Victoria as he ruffles papers at a massive rate. It's great radio. Um, whose name's Nick Eberle. Nick Eberle. We've had him on before, in fact, and Nick's going to talk about the impact of what, what Trump's doing to the environment, but also the impact of what our own governments are doing to the environment. So we'll have a yarn about that in the second half of the program. But, Lynn, I thought we'd open up seeing you're a new presenter. I know you've, uh, in fact, you've travelled around the world as a journalist, we, we won't necessarily ask for your, uh, your CV travel log necessarily, but, but, um, <laughs> you're, uh, but you have, you've also worked for Greenpeace in The Hague, etc. Can you give us just a brief rundown of your background, just bringing you to City Limits? Yes, um, well, journalism, you know, right from the age of 16, my God, and um, worked in a lot of mainstream media in the UK and mostly Australia. Then I went into working for the federal government for several de- several departments in, a, in senior public affairs positions. Um, the last one was actually foreign affairs and trade, so I had a couple of um, postings in Hungary and in um, Brussels, um, direct, uh, head of heading up their public affairs area in the cultural attaché. But the last three years, I've become a lot more interested in social issues, human rights issues, and I spent the last three years in the Netherlands, uh, based in The Hague, and then um, later than that, Amsterdam, where Greenpeace International is now based. And I work there as a media specialist, um, environment being one of my one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in. But in The Hague, a lot of NGOs, so I worked for a number of those. Um, particularly relating to, um, for instance, I worked for Gender Concerns International, which was pushing um, women's political voice in uh, the Middle East and African countries, um, particularly Libya at that time. Um, women wanted to part in the new constitution, which unfortunately things have deteriorated somewhat in Libya, so that hasn't been happening as we'd hoped. But that was very, very, very interesting to get involved in that. And another NGO was the International Water and Sanitation Centre, which is based in The Hague. And I was working for them as an editor-writer. And and they are trying to improve conditions also in Middle East and African countries in water and sanitation. 
uh, it fueled my interest much so much more too in in social issues, social justice issues, and particularly poverty and anything to do with discrimination. And when I came back to Australia late last year, I was pursuing more work with NGOs, but ended up also doing um, working. F- doing some work for the Saturday paper and a a few magazines. The Saturday paper recently wrote an article which has created quite a bit of interest on a range of issues which included widespread age discrimination in the workforce from 45 up, believe it or not, and um, also the homelessness issue where apparently most homeless people, um, women over the age of 70, which was quite a shock, and also public sector crisis, as public sector housing crisis, rather. So that got me more immersed into those areas, and has led to some to good feedback, and to some other um, questions relating to this, and to write more articles on those issues, which I hope to discuss in this program. Good, awesome, Kevin. I've got a question. You have. Okay. Is it possible to be overqualified <laughs> to be on city limits? It is. We have certainly filled the queue the last few years of not being overqualified. Anyway, We've got some uh, balance now. It's good. <laughs> and, Andy puts us to shame a bit there. I mentioned because we're seeing all these um, for a man who got elected saying he wanted to take on the big end of town. Donald yes. Trump has appointed the big end of town all over the place, including Goldman Sachs people everywhere in running his machine. And access to him. A couple of weeks ago, um, the head of BHP, um, NASA, the ex-Ford man, um, the Australian Jack NASA, and his offsider, they met Trump in New York. In um, yes, in New York as Trump Towers um, at the time. Uh, a couple of so you know, I, if they can have access, I suppose any of us can say, look, I'd like to talk to Don and ring yeah. up and have a bit of influence here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, the Fin Review's about to run this seminar with big business people talking about how big business can make more killing, uh, including one of the key people is Anthony Pratt, who, of course, is the son of the um, and, then, and scion of that family, who's mm. now one of the biggest features in the richest list every year at the, near the top. Mm. Um, and it, um, it says, uh, it point, in promoting how good he is, it says, Rich List editor John, John Steinsholt will interview US-based executive chairman of Busy Industries Anthony Pratt, who has operations in the American Midwest and was not surprised by Donald Trump's election victory. US Vice President Mike Pence opened Busy's latest Indiana paper mill last year. Isn't that lovely news? Lovely news. Yes, yes, yes. Mm. yes. So uh, they've got a big in there, and that's just good to hear because that's what you need, isn't it? Yes. Did you have anything you wanted to... No, you keep going. I'm sure that I'm sure it will lead to something. Um, it well, it probably will. I've mean, yes. got lots of stuff about that yeah, particular I mean, you got a lot man, of... but we're not going to. We won't. Look, we'll do our usual thing with the Herald Sun and the way it because uh, we love having time. Hang on, have a, say something. I'm going to have a sip of tea. Hang on. Oh, Len, do you want to say something? Oh, well, Too late. rally, sip. rally. I'm going to talk about the rally. Oh, now. Okay, rally, yes. rally, rally. Okay. Twelve o'clock uh, midday. A uh, rally. Um, Twelve o'clock midday. Yes. Yes, that's the one. Noon. <laughs> noon. Not yeah. midnight, not midnight no, not today. <laughs> yes, that's right. Noon. So in a, just uh, less than two hours from now. So that's the rally for more public housing. One that's of very the confusing. It's less than three hours from now. Mm. Oh, crikey, it is too. Mm. Can you tell I only had two hours sleep last night? Okay. Yeah. So, yes. Mm. 
less than three hours from now, rallying for more public housing at the steps of Parliament. So come along. All right. And um, you know, the, the Herald Sun, I mean, we know it's been doing this big beat up about every 12 year old in the, in the state should be locked up for life. Yes. And uh, our criminal justice system is completely out of control. Judges actually let people out, for instance, or give them sentences that have endings and all that sort of stuff. It's quite disgraceful. So they run page after page. And, of course, anything in which they can attack the the current state government, Dan, mm. that terrible, as we say, Dan now on the front page is always a pejorative. Um, they get into them. So they, get in, they got into them over that one big time. But now they've got this minor problem because they really want this new this new youth facility to go up at, uh, out in the Werribee area. Mm. Um, but so they normally, if people object to something, like when they, objected to, when they object to the rail crossings, it's all over the front page and Dan should back off. It's mm. terrible what he's doing. But with this one, um, once um, the people are complaining at Werribee, but that didn't get a mention. The story got buried back on page 10. Dan toughens up, in fact, it's almost a for him, a good headline. Mm. And then a small piece down the bottom, residents alarmed. Um, <laughs> yeah. Now, that would have been all over the front page yes. if uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that it's something that they actually want. Yes. But also, a few days earlier, there were front page headlines and double spreads inside the report from the ex-police commissioner about the terrible situation there and how it needs to be closed down. It's awful mm. and the, it's out of control. The state government's lost control, etc. There were two reports came out that week. The second one was by the ombudsman, Deborah Glass. Mm. Now, her report said the state of Victoria's youth justice system has been slammed by her, we'll see, that's the start of it, with revelations of staff shortages, over-reliance lock, um, and lockdowns and young offenders not even receiving toilet paper. And it goes on about the terrible conditions in the place and where um, the Gravillia high security area where young people are kept in lockdown for longer periods, creating further unrest. Um, it goes on to say she raised concerns about the Malmesbury Centre where a mass breakout occurred, including claims inmates were required to sleep in rooms other than bedrooms without toilets and in some circumstances without mattresses or bedding. And it goes on, quite awful situations, and or situations that make you understand why kids, you know, teenagers mm. are going to bloody rebel living under those conditions. Mm. But that story, unlike the, the police commissioner story over the front page and everywhere else, got buried back on page five as a single column down the right-hand side. That's so, right, yes. Yes, there yes. you are. No surprises there. Just thought I'd mention that little fact. Oh, no, it's, you, they will keep pointing these things out. It's important to let people know. Yes. How they go. And we didn't mention last week, um, We, we uh, last week um, we didn't get on to industrial relations at all, but quite over the break there was a, a decision in the federal court which was quite interesting because before the break we, we mentioned that a, um, a member of the um, Fair Work Commission had ruled that 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 unions couldn't pay the fines for individuals, and particularly aimed at the building unions, of course, uh, and that they had to pay them themselves. Now, the federal court overruled that during the break, very quietly it came up, but now they ruled that, they, in fact, they, they can, which was a, was a bit of a win for the, uh, for the unions. Mm. And there was also a case last week where, um, a case a couple of weeks ago now, in fact, but where, again, the commission ruled in favour of an agreement or, or ruled out an agreement but that he that the bosses in a maritime area over in Western Australia on the offshore drillings areas um, had attempted to foist on the maritime union. 
Mm. Uh, now, the court ruled they couldn't because of technicalities, but it was a victory for the union. And as a result, the headline the next day, cash to act on workplace agreements. And of course, the, the, the ex-Freehills lawyer, who's now Minister for Industrial Relations, uh, is now going to move to overturn the law that allowed that to happen. Um, yes. So we get the, the usual situation, usual which again situation, makes, a, yeah. makes a farce of the uh, s- separation of powers. Really, oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. Where the government can just go and do what it likes. Also over the break, um, Graham Watson, who was um, a former, another former Freehills lawyer, he resigned amid a, you know, sending a letter about how awful the system was. It was run by unions, etc. And, um, and the and the interesting thing about that was the bosses all applauded what he'd done and said what we need are more independent people like Graham Watson on the commission. And in order to prove how independent he was, the financial review went back through the records and found one case where in a very minor matter he'd actually found for a union against a boss. <laughs> uh, just the one. Just the one, yeah. But they want more independent people like yeah, him. They must have more. It's very need, important. A, need them desperately. It's very important, Kevin. <laughs> more independence the better yeah. yes that's right and as a result um we're pleased to know dominoes of course got sprung all these places always get sprung underpaying the sad thing is they get sprung by the um fair work ombudsman and not because people aren't in unions anymore if people mm. were in unions these things wouldn't happen well, that's in fact, right. they'd be getting better pay and conditions exactly. but but um, they found so dominoes now because they say well it's going to boost you know if they have to pay real Real rates, and they have to actually pay for uh, pay for um, penalty rates mm. at weekends, etc. Good grief! Um, it's going to boost their pay bill. Now, what they haven't pointed out is that they've been they've been exploiting workers for years and mm. underpaying them and making profit out of it. But now they've actually put a surcharge on Sunday pizzas. On mm. on Sunday, you pay a surcharge mm. to meet their extra costs, and mm. they're they're complaining about the extra cost this is going to bring to their um, the poor dears. They're going to have to pay more. Uh, in wages. Isn't that awful? Shocking. Um, they think they might have to cut back on staff because of that. The other one that got sprung, uh, uh, there's a company set up, and I think they're in, I think they're in um, the old post, old GPO actually, aren't they? That H&R mob or whatever they are, a fashion place. Oh, yeah. Um, now, there's been a couple of local fashion fashion places, Marker and David Lawrence, have uh, hit the uh, receiver brick wall in the past week or so. And one of their big complaints is that places like H and R, which are international, is that H and M? H and M is it H and M? Yeah, H and M. Is it H and M? Is it oh, yeah. whatever, whatever? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, whatever that place is, um, they they have an advantage because they um, are international and they can virtually have stuff that's on the catwalks of the world in their stores within days, mm. uh, cheaper mm. versions of. Uh, and they the, one of the complaints by these people, the there was a the retail person speaking, the fashion retail person complaining about all this, that our people had, were at a disadvantage because they also use low-cost um, Bangladeshi, etc., workers mm. to make their clothes. And it was pointed out to this person fairly that so do we. So what's the difference there? Where's the advantage? But what the H&M, H&M or H&R, whatever the name is, they got sprung, um, again, for underpaying workers big time. Mm. Uh, by the ombudsman, and they're still being assessed as to you know to what degree they're mm. they're, they're buying by the abiding by the law or not abiding by the law, because they were trying to put through an agreement that would make a lot of particularly casual workers a mm. lot worse off. Yeah. Uh, but in an interview on the ABC the other morning with this person about this issue, uh, and this was after the the ombudsman had sprung them, 
not one, I was waiting for the question, but also H&R or even this person here to say they have a further advantage because they're underpaying workers, they've been sprung and they're you know, treating workers. But that issue, which I thought was pretty important to the debate, just never got a mention, never no. rated, never no. rated. Never got mentioned. So there you are. And, uh, yeah, they're a big international. They're in there just about every, every other country, it seems. Like yeah. H&M, they're all yeah. over the place. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, that, right. yeah, that was the go. And uh, so uh, the old H&M... And uh, yes, H and M, Zara, and anyway, Zara, Zara, and Uniqlo—they're the other ones who do it. But H and M, H and M is the one that got sprung by the, the ombudsman. And well, thank um, God we have an ombudsman, isn't it? Just I mean, if we didn't yeah. have that, we'd be stuffed, wouldn't we? Well, it, in fact, it says in the story, the story appeared in the Fin Review, and it was uh, H&M offered a series of undertakings over several months to satisfy the Commission's better-off overall test, including by capping weekend hours for casuals at 65% over a 13-week period. But Mr Bull, who's the the um, person from the Ombudsman's thing, found workers on certain roster arrangements to still be worse off, etc., etc. So they, they're still trying to... Uh, they're still trying to get the old workers in the in the hip pocket. Mm. Oh yeah, which is will wonderful. Do. Yeah, as yeah. always. Mm. And there's a bloke called uh, Matthew Stevens. Uh, we've mentioned him a few times. Who has a column in the Financial Review, mainly about mining and union issues, mining, primarily mining unions and mining issue. And he's a he's a massive fan of the whole resource industry, and a massive hater of unions, mm. uh, as we've mentioned a few times. And he actually had this headline. The Chilean strike BHP has to have because, um, yes, it has to have it because in Chile, their mine there, the Escondida mine, um, it needs to be more um, it needs to be more productive. Mm. It's going well. It's making a lot of money. It's making record profits, in fact. But um, they, it produces about 5% of the world's copper. And the miners offered what good wages, etc. But being a by, but being among the best performers in Chile is just no longer enough. Productivity is a global game at BHP, and having invested all this money, etc., it has to save money. So it's uh, it's made a reasonable offer to the workers. Um, the usual pathway to improve productivity is through more prudent cost management, etc. It's asked the 2,500 members of the Escondida Number One Union to accept what is effectively a four-year pay freeze, a two-thirds reduction in the end-of-conflict bonus handed to workers for just signing a new deal, and new flexibility over shift patterns, etc., etc. And the workers are, uh, are rebelling, but... Um, as Matthew says, it's a strike they have to have in order to improve their productivity and smash the union. So, <laughs> That's pretty drastic, yeah. God, it's a worry, isn't it? It's, it's going a, well. It's, it's going bleak. Well. Yeah, no, yep. it's... Um, yep, any any so good news? Anything to cheer us up? <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is city limits. Bearing right? in mind that we'll probably be talking about climate change in 10 minutes' oh, time. Go, I, was just, I mean, this is the good news, actually, compared go, to what we will be talking about, about folks. To, we're is, about to discuss the end of the, end you, of the world. You haven't heard nothing yet. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be reminiscing for this 10 minutes. So I wouldn't, get, I wouldn't take it too seriously. Um, no, we, I don't think we should have any good news on city limits. No, we don't do good news here. No. no. Other shows do, though. That's, yeah. that's why we well, have a balance. You go into this housing rally today. And last night, the Melbourne City Council, um, at least they adjourned the debate, and they had a big crowd there uh, about because they were about to throw home, well, they were about to rule that homeless couldn't sleep anywhere effectively. Yeah. And that raises the issue because you know, because the poor people go into the tennis, the rich go into the tennis mm. on, as I keep pointing out, mm. what used to be a working class yeah. site. Um, going to the tennis might actually see homeless people on the street. They had to be cleaned out. 
um, again, an, another Lupin Murdoch campaign for the good of society. Uh, but they kept saying, well, it, it's just that they can't sleep there. But then they're really, if they really can't sleep anywhere, where it does raise the question, where, where do they actually sleep? It does raise it. That's quite a that's quite an important question because I don't understand where these people are meant to sleep. I mean, are there are other council proposing there be allocated places? I mean, yeah, I, it's it's a big concern. It's a big concern. I mean, the housing situation in this country is such that the homelessness problem is only going to accelerate. And rather than dealing with it proactively and properly, they're just trying to push it under the rug and so it's 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 terrible mm. yeah. has there been an in, a, a d- distinct increase in the number of homelessness in the last uh, year or yes. so because yes. they've closed some of the centers yeah is it because they closed down it's places? a number of reasons i mean part of the reason is because of closures but the other part of the reason is is because it's just harder and harder to get a place to live um on on a low income um Rental places are getting more expensive. Obviously, most people can't afford to buy a house anymore. Mm. And um, and the demand um, is outstripping supply. Uh, so it's just a consequence of the, the system we're in that creates property, that treats property as something um, that you just invest in as a... Yeah. Rather you, than a place to live. Do you think the general public have this view that um, a general view that it's people who are living on the streets have got some psychological problem and it isn't actually a practical problem like lack of housing and that sh- is not being pushed enough? I think there's, that, a, that there's a combination. I think there is. I mean, a lot of people who end up on the streets do have psychological problems. Um, so because it's they're com- on the streets, though. Well, yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's a vicious yeah. circle. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, the women that I mentioned earlier, the ones that are over 70, according to statistics, um, that are homeless are one of the biggest um, group. Um, I asked the question when I was finding this out, why? Is, it, is there a, have they got you know, maybe some psychological problem, what's the issue? No, no, it's to do with, I was told it was to do with the fact that broken homes, um, death of a spouse, uh, family, in you know, maybe family dysfunction where the family are trying to get rid of the, the parent. Well, there was all sorts of other issues that were nothing to do with them being psychologically mm. unsound mm. at all. Mm. And they just had, and they couldn't afford the rent because mm. the rent's the big problem, the private rentals. Yeah. And that's again it spins off into this lack of private sector housing and community yeah. housing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah, some re- there was a research at Swinburne that Andrea Sharam did, uh, who used to co-present on this program, um, into women over forty in housing. And you know, it was it's not just people who are on the streets, but a lot of um, particularly with women in that situation you talk about, where they're you know broken homes or whatever, or you know they've been forced into situations mm-hmm. who might be earning money and, and not badly off as such but mm. they still are in housing problems yes because they it's still an unaffordability problem for them in exactly terms of, in terms of housing i think what is it the herald sun who are sort of horrified that some of the homeless people actually had a had a phone a mobile an iphone it's like if they're homeless they shouldn't have an iphone mm. it's like <laughs> and that's the other that's it's a hell of a lot easier to yeah. get an iphone than a place I mean, to that's, the two things they're talking about is is classing a law that says you can't sleep on the street mm. Uh, but also a law that the authorities can pick up anything lying around there. So you, you yeah. know, the people have got very few possessions anyway. Well, I mean, if you're right. homeless, you haven't. You're not exactly running around with pianos and uh, no. armchairs and no. things and television sets. Um, but uh, whatever goods they've got, they they they're going to pass a law. They can just pick them up and take them away. 
Are there any places earmarked at all for creating um, um, shelters or homes for these people? They keep they keep making noises. That's mm. about it. They make uh, noises, but yeah. I, I suspect that they'll never be able to cater to the demand because the demand is is increasing all of the time. So it, it constantly, it'll be a constant game of trying to play catch up. I think if they are trying to. Provide. Well, n- not necessarily. I mean, the, the figure is something like two hundred and something in Melbourne itself, in the city mm. of Melbourne. Uh, 260 or something. Okay. I the figure they give now. I don't mm. have to work that one out. Must go and count, I suppose. But, um, you know, that's not a lot of people to no, put under true, a roof. Uh, and particularly given that we, on the other hand, the other end of town, you see them day by day announcing new multi-storey mm. hotels and residential places, mm. you know, for the for the mm. very for the super rich, mm. uh, so there's no shortage of rooms around True. Melbourne. Oh no, you're absolutely right. There's definitely no shortage of and rooms. And it's, it's two sixty something isn't yeah. a lot of people to no, put under a roof. I mean, of course, there are the hidden homeless people who who aren't on the streets but who are sleeping on people's yeah. floors and couches, yeah, their cars, and, and cars, and, yeah. and I, I imagine that would be considerably more more people. Um, but you're right. I mean, there's there's we if, certainly if we put our minds to it, we could get most of the homeless off the streets quickly so there's no excuse not to act definitely no. one of the organizations that's there's only two in melbourne as far as i know that help people find public sector housing this is more for older people aging pe- people is winteringham and they say that they told me that there's 30,000 people on the public sector housing list in victoria but there's actually 70,000 on that similar list in new south wales mm. so new south wales has got a couple of major projects that combines community housing with private sector housing which is a, an experiment that actually worked in south australia but whether it will work there i'm not sure maybe it's something they need to look at here Yes, yes. All things need to be on the table, I think. Um, Public housing obviously has to be the number one priority. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Well, we're going to take a break. We're going to go to our first guest, and our only guest, (laughs) who's Nick Averley. And um, Nick's from Environment Victoria, and we'll get him after this break. Okay, we've got Nick Everly on the line, who's the environment person or his climate change person, lucky man working on climate change issues with um, with Environment Victoria. And uh, Nick, I've also got um, Lynn and Mark in the studio. I'm sure you'll pick the different voices, but I thought we'd just open with uh, looking at what Trump's doing. And he has appointed, uh, of course, um, Rick Perry, who, had, who wrote a book saying that uh, client change, the science of human-caused climate change, was a conceived phony mess. He's appointed uh, Scott Pruitt, of course, to the EPA over there, uh, who have sued them many times because because they tried to do something about the environment, and he's appointed the head of Exxon Mobil as Secretary of State. Is this a good start? Well, I think you've summed it all up there. I mean, you know, you forgot to add into the list. I think that during the, uh, I'm not sure if it was the election campaign itself for the for the presidency or whether it was during the primaries, but Donald Trump himself has also tweeted that I think climate change is a, is a hoax invented by the Chinese to yeah, yeah. destroy American manufacturing or something to that effect. Which is wrong because Malcolm Harper says it's a United Nations conspiracy, so one of them's wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, I'm sure they could both be right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's obviously extremely worrying signs coming out of the US uh, on, on all sorts of fronts, to be honest. Um, you know, from an environment and climate perspective in particular. Um, you know, it, and it sort of goes beyond just the appointments, but it's it's the actions that have already been taken by the Trump administration through a series of executive orders, um, but also by others. I saw a report yesterday that uh, some a Florida congressman, I believe, has put a bill into Congress to, a, 
to abolish the EPA, the, the American EPA. Mm. Um, I don't know what kind of traction this is going to get. You know, I don't think this is a, uh, coming directly from the Trump administration itself. Um, but, uh, you know, there's this phrase that we keep hearing of certain people are being emboldened by Trump's election victory. Uh, and I think, you know, it, there's going to be the bad things that we see for the environment coming out of Trump directly, but then there's going to be these other sort of spin-off consequences like, you know, other Congress people in the US putting forward, you know, crazy things like abolishing the EPA. Um, so, yeah, it's very worrying times. Mm. In terms of the Paris decision, Paris um, agreement, or sort of agreement, over a year ago now, um, what impact can this have on that and, it, and, then, and, that, and in turn on the whole international campaign? Um, well, I mean, you know, I guess one saving grace of the situation is that the, the Paris agreement has come into effect. Uh, so the US signed onto it uh, before... The, the presidential election. Um, so you know the, uh, the 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 boxes have been ticked for the for the effect for the uh, agreement to be in effect. So that's so that's a good thing, um, and it means that you know everyone else is everyone is still responsible for meeting their obligations. Um, obviously, Trump is now signalling that, that the US might withdraw from that. It sounds, from what I'm hearing, like that is a a very real possibility. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure what can be done to prevent that. But I think part of the, the silver lining here is that in the same way that we've seen a bunch of individual states and cities across the US, uh, you know, I guess having their own backlash against things like the the Muslim immigration ban, we're seeing a similar kind of response to from those same states and cities to the suggestion that, that Trump might pull the US out of the Paris Agreement, where... You know, California is saying they're just going to go ahead and start doing this stuff anyway. And and a bunch of the other probably more progressive states uh, are similarly saying, you know, we don't really care if Trump is trying to block climate action. We are going to get on with the job. Um, and, and I think around the world we're seeing that as well, where, you know, obviously the US is a huge emitter and we need them to be dealing with their, their climate pollution. But if, if we're going to have a, a recalcitrant federal government in the United States, there are still plenty of things that the rest of the world can do and that individual American states can do that can effectively just obviate Trump completely and and render any of his efforts to stop climate change, uh, to stop climate action quite meaningless. Mm, no, that's, that sounds good. Lee, did you have maybe one last yeah, I just want to switch slightly away from Trump and uh, is that uh, going to Australia. Um, just one of the things that I've, I used to work for Greenpeace International at one point in Amsterdam not late last year, and you probably know all about all their campaigns, but one of the things that came up um, was the energy efficiency issue when I was working for them. But particularly I, I note that I haven't been back in Australia all that long, but Australian policymakers seem to have a bit of a blind spot on energy efficiency. I wondered if you had any comment on that. For instance, um, there's some research being done by groups such as Climate Works Beyond Zero Emissions that's shown that many energy efficiency me- measures generally actually save money while cutting carbon emissions so they have a negative carbon cost. Like after the South Australian um, blackout, there was very little um, 
didn't appear to write a mention following that blackout about energy efficiency. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I totally agree. Energy efficiency is a, is a huge part of this challenge that we're facing. Um, the International Energy Agency in their modelling, I think, has assessed that globally energy efficiency is going to be responsible for delivering about 40% of the emissions cuts that, that we need, uh, which, you know, as a, as a, as a single, single thing is, is quite staggering. I think here in Australia we're quite a long way behind the curve on... Um, on how seriously we take energy efficiency and just on that topic I actually had a tweet on Q&A that showed up on the screen on on Monday night to that effect it um, as you say it's often a cost negative way of reducing emissions and the point that I made in my in my tweet was if you you know if you're concerned about your power bill which many people are the best thing to do is to get really serious about energy efficiency um, Environment Victoria has been running a campaign for a long time to improve the energy efficiency, in particular, of low-income homes in Victoria. Um, you know, often uh, we we know that power bills make up a higher percentage of, of household expenditure for for lower-income homes, uh, and low-income homes are, are the people who are least able to, you know, for example, turn on a conditioner to keep their house comfortable in summer because they know that they can't afford the power bill. Uh, and the the analysis that we've done is that you know, a, a relatively modest retrofit to, to someone's house uh, can save them about $1,000 a year on their power bills, uh, which is staggering. I mean, that's an enormous percentage of the average power bill. Um, and not only that, it's also reducing all the demand from the coal-fired power stations that make up most of our electricity supply. So, you know, as you, as you noted, there's, you know, huge co-benefits to all of this and it, it makes people's homes more comfortable is this widely known though by the it's just been publicized a lot well, well we're certainly mm. working on it um, mm. and, and i think it is growing into consciousness i mean the, uh, the state government is hopefully about to release uh, an energy efficiency and productivity strategy uh they've um just in the last couple of weeks, announced a new program to improve the energy efficiency of a few of I think 800 of uh, sort of low-income homes of, of particularly vulnerable people uh, in various parts around around the state. So you know, governments are well aware of this. Um, unfortunately, we saw a, actually a cancelling of the the federal uh, program, which is the energy efficiency opportunities, uh, which is basically defunded uh, under Tony Abbott, I think. Um, so, you know, which is very frustrating because then, you know, you see coalition government now, coalition federal government now, you know, basically running fair campaigns about power prices. And it's like, well, if we had have actually kept a bunch of the decent energy efficiency schemes that we had, then maybe this wouldn't be a problem right now. Um, you know, so I think there, there is an awareness of it. I, unfortunately, I think energy efficiency suffers from being sort of the, the less sexy cousin to renewable energy and, and putting solar panels on your roofs. Mm. Um, but it is, you know, and part of that is probably because it, it's invisible, right? You know, you walk along the street, and you can see solar panels on someone's house, and you think, oh, cool, solar panels, that's great. Um, but no one's seeing the insulation in your walls and your roof and the draft sealers and, no. you know, these things that are, I, I guess, in some ways a little bit boring, um, mm. but, but extremely important and extremely valuable in cutting emissions, reducing, emission, reducing energy need and, and saving people on their power bills. And it also make the biggest contribution to cutting fossil fuel carbon emissions up to maybe 2030, according to the IEA, the International Energy Agency. Yeah, that was, sounds like a great idea to push 
Mm. One of the problems, of course, is a lot of people are renters. So they're not, they're disempowered when it comes to making these changes to their, their houses where they're li living. And then this is coupled with the fact that there aren't strict enough rules with new, new houses that are being built. If new houses that are being built have solar panels and, ener and better energy efficiency built into the mix, then it means that renters get to, get to benefit from that. But in, so we've got this double-pronged issue. We've got renters who, who can't retrofit because it's, it's not really um, financially, a financial incentive for the landlord. And we've got new houses that are being built that aren't up to the standard needed to mi mitigate climate change. Do you see this as being a problem? Yeah, I mean, you've really sort of hit the nail of two really big issues. Um, I mean, on the rental issue, uh, one point is that the, the Andrew State Government at the moment is uh, reviewing uh, the Residential Tenancies Act, which is one of the things that sort of sets a lot of the standards mm -hmm. for rental properties. Uh, and we've actually had a petition running to uh, the Minister for Consumer Affairs, Marlene Carews, uh, calling on the State Government to include minimum standards for energy efficiency as part of that review of the of the Residential Tenancies Act for that exact reason that you've identified, that there's this split incentives between landlords and tenants where mm. if you make a home more energy efficient, that is going to cost the landlord a bit of money yep. and all the benefit is going to accrue to, well, a large part of the benefit is going to accrue to the tenant. Yes. Um, and so how do it, it is difficult to overcome that split incentive and you know, our view is that one of the best ways of doing that is to have minimum standards so that you can't, you know, rent out a property if it doesn't meet, you know, some pretty basic at first standards of what people should expect in terms of the thermal comfort of their homes. Good. Um, you know, mm. we think that these standards will need to be ratcheted up over time. Yes. Um, but at, 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 as a minimum, at a starting point, we think there should be some pretty basic energy efficiency standards introduced you know, to, to help tenants with that situation. On well, the, it's good on that the, it's being examined, yeah. Yes, I mean, if people want to go to our website, we've got a petition going at the moment. You can sign on, send, a, send your message to the Minister for Consumer Affairs here in Victoria. And, you know, I think, well, I think we've got a good opportunity here to, um, to get those minimum energy efficiency standards for rental homes, mm. you know, put into mm. law. And it also needs the nature of tenancy to be changed anyway in many ways and the, the, at least people can feel much more uh, certainty about the future of their mm. rentals. That, that helps as well. Um, it does. So that's a, that's a separate, separate arm to it, of course. Um, also, of course, last week we had Malcolm um, Turnbull's statement about the fact that we need the answer to coal polluting was more coal, um, which was pretty encouraging. Um, it brought out a bloke called Brendan Pearson, who I'm sure you know, who's chief executive of the Minerals Council of Australia, who made the point that coal's the only source that can go 24 hours a day, the usual argument they put up. But he concluded, and, and in fact Turnbull said, put, said this as well, the three imperatives of energy policy in Australia are, in order, reliability of supply, affordability, and lower emissions footprint in that order. New generation coal plants can deliver on all three. You can't say that about all other energy options on the table. Now, Turnbull virtually said the same thing. Is, is, are they right? Well, look, I mean, uh, where Malcolm Turnbull has headed on these issues in the last six to nine months has been extremely disappointing. Um, you know, I think there were a lot of expectations before the federal election that, that Turnbull's leadership might 
lead to a, a, a different treatment of, of climate policy than what we'd previously seen from the federal coalition. But you know, the, the approach that he's taking on these things has really shown that it's, it's business as usual for the, the coalition, unfortunately. Um, you know, they've already ruled out, you know, as part of their 2017 review of climate policy that they've uh, committed to, uh, they've already ruled out a perfectly sensible uh, mechanism that would improve the uh, emissions intensity of our electricity supply with minimum impact on, on power prices. Um, and, you know, it's... Uh, it is very frustrating, um, you know, to prote- specifically on the, on the, you know, in quotes, clean coal, this ultra super critical uh, coal power stations that they're talking about now. If you look at the figures, you know, th- these are not, these are barely cleaner than what we've got at the moment. You know, this is the equivalent of a of a smoker saying, I'm not going to smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, I'm, I'm going to smoke 1.8 packs of cigarettes a day. You know, it's, it's that useless as, as a way of improving the or reducing the pollution from our electricity supply. Um, they talk about, you know, this ultra-supercritical technology, if you use it on brown coal, which is what we have here in Victoria, it's still going to be more polluting than an average black coal power station in New South Wales. So you've got to ask this question, what is the point? Um, it is not really, it's not delivering the emissions reductions that we need on anywhere near the timescale that we need them. And the investment uh, profile for these things just doesn't stack up either. The Australian mm. Industry Group is saying, this is, you know, ultra supercritical coal is a very unattractive proposition, even at the moment. You know, even if we take the very weak climate targets that the federal government has set, ultra-supercritical coal is not a viable investment option. Um, and the other side of that is, well, what, you know, I think we need to be asking the question, what do, we, what do we need our electricity system to look like in 10 to 20 years' time? Uh, I don't disagree with Malcolm Turnbull that the, the considerations are how much pollution does it create, is it reliable, is it affordable? Um, I, I think, unfortunately, that too much emphasis from the coalition has been on the affordability and reliability, and they are just com- really, really completely forgetting about the need to decarbonise quickly. Um, you know, we can have other sources of electricity that provide uh, reliable supply that doesn't involve coal. Um, you know, various studies, very reputable studies, have shown that we can have a grid that's powered by 100% renewable energy. Um, you know, battery technology is becoming cheaper and cheaper by the day. Uh, we know that from a reliability perspective, in fact, the most reliable type of grid is having, uh, you know, very localised systems with distributed generation in, you know, across each suburb with localised battery storage. And that's the kind of system that we need if we're going to prevent, you know, let's say a massive storm knocking over transmission towers from affecting everyone's electricity supply. You know, and that's not just my view, that's the view of the CEO of AGL, who has said, you know, the most reliable or or robust or resilient electricity system we could have would be a a distributed generation system, which is a lot of renewable energy in all parts of the country with, you know, battery backup, all sorts of things. Um, To pretend that the best approach to supplying electricity is having a small number of very large power stations with 
giant transmission lines running into the cities. That's a very antiquated way of seeing electricity, and we need to move away from it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And also, I suppose, from a town planning perspective, um, we've also got to look at the way we build our suburbs and lay out our suburbs, because if we... Obviously, the focus on clean, renewable energy is very, very important, but if we continue to build car-dependent suburbia, building on our food belts, food bowls around our cities then that also increases climate change as well. So we've, we've got to look at the land use issues as well as renewable energy issues, of course. Yeah, yeah all, all this stuff is connected, you know, yeah, and, and we right. need to clean up our electricity supply, but yeah. transport makes up about 17% of our climate pollution as well. So yeah. certainly we need to be looking at solutions for all these things. That's right, yeah. And it's causing more confusion because I noticed one of the big super funds, the Vision Super Fund, came out last week and said they're, they're wary about investing. They'd love to invest in renewable energy infrastructure, but it's too risky because there's so much uncertainty about government policy. So they really need a guideline, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been known and accepted for a long time that it's the uncertainty around climate policy that's been the biggest problem in terms of getting the investment in renewable energy that we need, um, you know, because investors who want to build renewable energy aren't sure what the landscape is going to look like in you know even in 12 months time uh and so that that lack of certainty around where we're headed is is a real problem yeah mark also referred to um to cars etc and i note there was a in a report um a couple of weeks ago about trying to bring in new fuel regulations australia rates um Australia rates uh, 35th in the list of OECD countries in our, um, in our, in our vehicle emission standards. Um, we've argued this on this program for a long, long time, that our standards are very low. I mean, that, that's not helping the whole environment situation either, is it? No, that's right. It's sort of another one of these situations where um, we have collectively failed to recognise that technological advances and moving to a slightly different way of doing things is not only better for the environment, but is going to save people money. Um, So, you know, the less efficient our cars are, the more people have to pay at the petrol pump to fill it up. It's just exactly the same as the energy efficiency argument for houses. Um, You know, and people say, oh, well, it's going to make our cars a little bit more expensive. Um, And it's like, well, you know, it might make your car... Let's say a thousand dollars more expensive, um, but in the context of how much the rest of the car costs, and in the context of how much you're going to spend on petrol over the next ten, twenty years for that car, it's, it's such a minor element, and you know it'll it'll pay itself back. It's it's better for the environment. It's better for your hip pocket, and. But unfortunately, we, we just sort of treat these things as, you know, we, we look at the upfront cost and go, oh, no, that's, that must be a bad thing, uh, when clearly, you know, this, this is going to be helping people. Mm. Tell me, do you, do you think we should be calling for a climate emergency? Um, are we looking at reports now coming in that, to be quite frank, are pretty alarming um, when you look at what's going on in the Arctic and um, the fact that, you know, last year was the hottest year on record, which beat the previous year, and then February is going to be hotter than January in New South Wales. So it seems like things are accelerating and getting worse, and I, I, I worry that the, the, the public are generally um, not really uh, grasping the seriousness of what we're facing and the potential consequences. Yeah, look, I think that's probably a fair assessment, unfortunately. Um, you know, it, the, the sort of seems to be two schools of thought on, on the situation that we're facing. There's sort of this 
mainstream view that oh we've probably got until 2050 or so to to get to zero emissions and you know that, that's sort of the position put by the IPCC in many ways. Um, unfortunately, as we know, the IPCC is an extremely conservative body uh, that comes up with sort of you know lowest common denominator. Uh, Positions uh, because it, it effectively operates by consensus. Um, the other view, is, and all those uh, projections that say we've got until you know 2050 or something like that, those are all relying on technology that doesn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. If if we're going to stay under two degrees, the unfortunately sober analysis is telling us that realistically we've got maybe five years to get to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very hard to conceive of how we can do that, mm. uh, which is a consequence of, you know, decades of, of ignoring the problem, really. Mm. We've, we have, you know, ignored it for too long, and now we're facing the reality that actually things need to change very, very quickly. Um, mm. And it's not clear that, that that's even going to be possible. And, and plus those IPCC uh, figures don't take into account the methane release from tipping points that are already going on in the Arctic and and all of that as well. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, we've, we've got this situation where uh, governments and, and others and public and probably a lot of the media are, are looking at things like the IPCC and saying, oh, well, we've still got 30 mm. years. Um, but if you, if you look at sort of the, I guess, the analysis that is a bit more, you know, sort of sanguine about some of these things, um, we really, really don't have that long. Uh, and you know, is this looking like a bit of an emergency? Well, yeah, I think it is. Um, and it's it's frustrating that we're not seeing the, the level of response that we need. Um, you know, it is politically difficult. There's a lot of, uh, you know, people are concerned about all sorts of things. Um, but, it, you know, I, I fear and, and worry that, that, we, that we're not going to get serious enough about this until it's all too late. Um, you know, we and many others are obviously working very hard to, you know, deal with it as quickly as possible. Um, uh, and we know that things can change very quickly. Um, you know, the biggest source of climate pollution in Australia is burning coal for electricity. Uh, and that is going to change very rapidly as we see the cost of renewables and the cost of battery storage drop so quickly, you know, faster than any projections have, have, have expected. So, you know, I think in five years' time, our, our, our energy system is going to look extremely different. So, you know, it's sort of the, the Al Gore view of things, which is, yes, we're in a, a terrible position, but we know that things both in the real world and in the political world can change on a dime. Um, and we need to just keep pushing on every single front so that, you know, to bring forward that moment when everything turns on a dime. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's the best hope we've got. So let's, let's keep pushing for it. Mm. Could I just, just could I just ask, bringing back to Victoria, um, with these um, Victorian government delaying its expected launch of the first of those several renewable energy auctions in the second half of 2017? Just a point: um, the Australian Energy Market Operator, which is the national agency that manages the national grid, um, has said that one way to reduce the cost of the new generation caused by the need for upgrades to electricity in the Victoria network was to allow new renewable energy 
to be sourced from projects outside Victoria. For instance, the ACT has allowed in its renewable auctions. Has, have you got any comments on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the state government now has its own uh, Victorian renewable energy target and they'll be running auctions uh, later this year um, to potentially tender for uh, you know, a certain number of megawatts of, of renewable energy supply. Um, I think that what they've done with the ACT, um, you know, I think the ACT was just a little bit ahead of us on this and so some of the wind farms that we've seen going ahead in Victoria lately have been as a result of the ACT scheme that you referred to. Um, but, you know, in the next 12 months, we should be seeing a lot of most likely wind farms, perhaps some large-scale solar up in the north of Victoria. Um, so, you know, this is sort of the direction we need to be going in. Um, you know, I think we're on... the Andrews government has got us on track for 40% renewable energy by 2025. Um, you know, I think we can probably beat that. Uh, it's going to be a challenge, but, um, you know, as I said, the continuing decline of uh, the cost of renewable energy, um, the fall of battery prices, which means that it's going to be much more attractive for people to be putting solar plus batteries on their roofs. That's going to be quite an affordable option very soon, if not now. Um, you know, we're likely to see... Hazelwood's obviously closing in a, in a couple of weeks. We're likely to see... Your lawn follow, I would think, in you know a, a few years after that. So you know the the transition is happening, and you know we just all need to work to make that transition as fast as possible. Mm. It's ironic, isn't it, that the the federal government stance seems to be that the that we need renewable energy, but the more renewable energy you get, the worse it is. Apparently, they they're actually saying it's a terrible problem that we have too much renewable energy. Yeah, I mean, I I just can't understand that. I mean, I think. They're, they're running a scare campaign that they think is, is going to work politically. Uh, I think Australians love renewable energy. I think they want to see more of it. I don't think anyone buys this, the, the power price you know, scare stuff that, that's coming out of um, the federal government at the moment. Well, so we've got no confusion as to what should happen. The only confusion here is we've got t- clocks that are two minutes apart in the studio, but I think I think we have to wind it up there because I think, well, I think the one that says 9.58 is pretty much the one that's right time. I've got no idea. But anyway, we'll sort it out. Look, look, Nick, we're going to have to finish there, but thanks for your time. No worries. And, uh, yeah. look, yeah, thank you. Uh, well, let's just, for one minute, a positive note. Then, it's been pretty pessimistic. Um, are there any, any good things on the horizon happening that we can talk about for one minute? Uh, well, I think, I mean, I feel like I've sort of identified a bunch of those already. And, um, you know, the, the transition from coal power to clean energy is happening. It's happening right now. And it's perhaps not happening as quickly as we need it to, but for a whole bunch of reasons, it is going to continue to accelerate. Um, the coal-fired power stations that are the source of most of our climate pollution, well, the biggest part of our climate pollution, are starting to close. You know, Hazelwood is going to be closed in less than two months. It's one of the dirtiest power stations on the planet. It's getting replaced by clean, renewable energy in a democratised way, which is that people are getting it on their own roofs. We're seeing it in a whole bunch of regional areas. Um, you know, this is the path that we need to be on. Uh, you know, the state government here has released a climate change framework. Uh, they've announced a long-term target for net zero emissions. We've got a 2020 target uh, for emissions reductions as well. You know, perhaps not the quite the level of ambition that we need in the short term, but, you know, we're starting to see the, pe- the planks being laid for a really 
positive approach to how we deal with climate change in Victoria. Okay, Nick, thanks for that. Well, that's somewhat positive. But look, thanks for your time today. We'll talk to you again anyway. Okay, thanks a lot. Thanks Cheers very much. Thank you. Radio. Thank Nick you. Nick there, who's the climate change person with Environment Victoria. And that's time up. Next week's housing issues. Housing for the ASAC group here. Mark, thanks a lot. Lynn, thanks for your Thank you. Yes, yeah, thanks, Lynn. Thank it's you. Been great to have you, yeah. Lynn. Thank you so much thank for being you. here, and we look forward to seeing lots more of you. And Lynn, seeing it's you. your first day, you can thank Andy for uh, doing a wonderful job for us. And oh, go yes. On. Thank no worries. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. Yeah, I'm intrigued what happens the other side of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're all intrigued. No, no. We're all intrigued what happens <laughs> at the other side. <laughs>